Well, I want to encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 9 and verse 14, and we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 18. Romans chapter 9, beginning with verse 14 through 18. As we have been in Romans the last uh, two weeks, that we are in a important section that makes this argument in the book of Romans that I hope that you will pay attention to. And there, there's probably, as I've told you before, that there's a lot of questions that as we're going through this that you may not feel like they're being answered for you. But that, that's kind of the nature of the progression that I'm going through the book of Romans is that I'm, I'm, hold, I'm trying to keep within the spirit of how Paul is writing this and really bringing people to the edge of their toes and, and asking questions that are going to be answered later on. Of course, I'm under no illusion that when I preach that you're on the edge of your toes unless that may be to leave, but um, nevertheless, there's, we're, especially here in this section in Romans 9, that I think there's a lot of questions that might be asked that aren't necessarily answered, and some of those answers don't come till chapter 10 and, and chapter 11, and so I want you just to, uh, I mean, if, if you're impatient, then you can just ask me, and I'll give you the answer to that, but if you can, just try to follow along with this text and this progression of Paul's thoughts, and maybe it will answer some of those questions that you may be asking as we go through this. Now, as we think about the circumstances in this world and in our own life, I think that there may be a tendency that it leads us to ask questions, and the questions mainly concern that as it relates to the justness and righteousness of God. As we survey various things that happen within our culture, within our society, we may think about how does God allow this to happen? Or why does this happen? Or, or how does a good God allow something like this to transpire? So those are questions when we think about asking how does a good, guy, good God allow suffering? Or how does a good God allow what we think to be senseless killing or senseless murderers or senseless deaths? How does a good God allow those things to transpire? And that's essentially a question whether God is actually righteous and whether he's just in in all that he does. Um, So as we think about maybe natural disasters that happen, you know, tornadoes here in Oklahoma, people losing everything, losing their lives, thinking back in the the last terrible uh, tornado that happened in Moore, Oklahoma, where a lot of the elementary kids were st- stuck and they, they drowned as it relates to, to flooding. And those, those questions ask us, how does God allow that to happen? Or maybe you've seen some of the pictures that's transpired over the last two days as it relates to this war that's going on in Israel where Hamas have come in to Israel. They've gone into various homes and just murdered women and children and elderly on the street and just leave their bodies there. They've taken some and held them hostage, and done unspeakable atrocities to them. And we wonder, how does God allow those kinds of things to happen? Now, to maybe to, to take it a little bit deeper and further, because we're thinking about those things as it relates to time and space, but when we ask questions in, in relation to how God acts in salvation and judgment, then it goes a little bit deeper in thinking about the justice and righteousness of God. And I think this becomes even clearer when we think that there are certain people who seem to be judged arbitrarily, 
by God. For instance, those who have never heard the gospel, those who have never had the opportunity to respond to the gospel, to the Lord Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, what's going to happen to them? Well, if we read our Bibles correctly, especially here in the book of Romans, we learn that they will stand without excuse. They can't stand before judgment and say, I never had the opportunity to hear the gospel, therefore I should enter into heaven. So if we're reading our Bible correctly, that means that those people who have never heard the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and have never responded to that gospel, they've never heard, they will spend eternity in the place that the Bible calls hell. So is God just in doing that? And maybe we think about it in the realms of our own, of our own life. It thinks about maybe the dynamics in our family. We're a believer our brothers and sisters aren't a believer. We're under the same household, heard the same gospel message, yet one received Christ and salvation. The other ones have rejected Christ and will, will spend eternity in judgment. Is God just in that? And so this is the question that actually comes up in this text, and it's essentially the previous section where Paul nails down what it means to be a people of God, and it elicits such a question. So if you remember from a couple of weeks ago, Paul made this statement that not all of Israel is Israel. And he narrowed the, and constrained the idea of what it actually meant to be part of Israel. And so he makes the argument that it was Isaac who received the, the promises. Not the other seven children of Abraham, but it was Isaac. It was Jacob who received the promises, not Esau. And so from that argument, what Paul is basically making is that just because you can trace your heritage, your family heritage, all the way to Abraham, does not mean you are a child of God. It does not mean that you are really essentially Israel. And so basically what Paul is doing is he's distinguishing between believing Israel and unbelieving Israel, the Israel who has received the Lord Jesus Christ as the Messiah and those who have rejected him. And the Israel who have rejected him, they are demanding and saying, we're Israel. Abraham's our father. We received the promises. We received the covenant. We received the law, and we are pursuing the law. We are, we are working, if you will doing the law, willing the law, exerting ourselves to do everything that's commanded in that law. We demand to be God's people. And it's unfair that we're not. Is God righteous in saying to this ethnic Israel who rejects Jesus Christ as Messiah, who are children of Abraham, who received the promises, received the law, who have full-heartedly given themselves over the law, is it right for God to say, you're not my people? So that's the question that's being asked as we look in verse 14. So notice here in verse 14 of Romans chapter 9. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. 
and I will have compassion on whomever I have compassion. So then, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. Well, let's pray and ask for God's help as we think about this text. Father, we give you praise and we give you glory for the fact that we encounter you in the context of your word. And so, Father, I pray that you'll be present in your word. I pray that you will give us understanding as we think about you and think about your righteousness and your justice. And God, do a work among us through your word by your spirit. And may your son Jesus Christ be exalted. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So as we begin looking at verse 14, it starts with a question, what shall we say then? Now this is not the first time that we've seen this question in the book of Romans. And what it does is it introduces a potential misunderstanding of his teaching. And more likely... The misunderstanding is what comes from the previous section as it relates to the idea that not all of Israel is Israel and Paul defining clearly what it means to be Israel. And so there, the, the question that is being asked here in verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there any unrighteousness with God? And it's one of the most serious errors which is questioning God's righteousness. In fact, Paul has already said that God would not be unrighteous if he judged Israel because of their unbelief in Romans chapter 3 and verse 5. And so the question is precipitated from the previous unit, the exclusion of the majority of ethnic Jews from God's promises. Israel believes that they have a right of themselves to be God's people. They are the heirs of the promises. It belongs to them. They have received it. Their family tree goes all the way back to Abraham. They have the covenants. They have the laws. And God is under obligation for them. God is under obligation to continue to work among and with them. And so with this question that's being asked, is there any unrighteousness with God? Paul answers that in the strongest way that he possibly can. Certainly not. Absolutely not. There is not any unrighteousness in God at all. So Paul is really answering this question with a resounding no. And as he answers it with a resounding no, he goes further, or he goes, he goes uh, forward by giving reason why there's a no to this question. Why God is not unrighteous. And so the negative answer is explained by the use of Scripture. Now, this is one of the things that is predominant here in Romans 9, 10, 11, is this overwhelming quotation of Old Testament Scriptures as Paul makes his case. And the reason for this is, is because in the background is the accusation from verse 6, if you remember, but is it, but it is not that the Word of God has taken no effect. So there's an accusation that God's Word has failed Israel. 
And so the way that Paul answers these questions or he moves his argument further is he actually uses the word of God to prove that the word of God has not failed and that it still stands, it is sufficient, and it sustains. So all throughout Romans 9 through 11, God's word is saturated. God's, Paul argues from God's word to show that God's word has not failed. And the quotation from verse 15 comes from Exodus 33 and verse 19. And this is a statement from Yahweh to Moses that results from the golden calf event. God intended to destroy Israel, yet Moses interceded and God relented from destroying Israel. And Moses wanted assurance after that event that God's presence would go with him in Israel after they had failed in idolatry. And so Moses wants to, to see God's glory. He wants to experience God's glory and God's presence because Israel has sinned. They have committed idolatry. And Moses wants to know that if we're going to go from this moment to the next, I need to know that you are truly with me. That you will truly not only go with me, but you will also continue to go with the people. And so Yahweh responds to this request by saying, I will make all my goodness pass before you. I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And this is the, this is the phrase that we find in Romans 9 and verse 15. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Whereas we see it in our text, it's I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I have compassion. And the reason for this quotation is to demonstrate that God's mercy is not based on obligation. It's not based on Israel's ancestral heritage. It's not based on the works that they do in regards to the law. Exodus 33 and verse 19 shows that God's mercy is undeserved and it's freely given by God and his own prerogative, his own initiative in keeping with his character. In the golden calf incident, Israel deserved judgment, but instead they reserved mercy. So if the Israel whom Paul is writing to feel God has any obligation to be merciful to them because they are descendants of Abraham and have the law, they are sorely mistaken. If they want to obligate God or if they think they deserve something from God, it is only rejection and judgment. I don't know if maybe it's kind of clear on why Paul actually picked this passage. What is the significance of Exodus 33 in relation to present-day Israel? Well, present-day Israel that Paul's speaking to, they think that God is under some compulsion to give them mercy. And so what Paul does is he argues from another incident in Israel's history, the disastrous and cataclysmic idolatry of Israel, and he shows that they did not deserve mercy, but I gave them mercy. And so he's making the case that mercy is not given under obligation. Mercy is not precipitated by the fact that you think that you deserve it. Mercy is given freely by God and in keeping with his character. The Israel of Exodus 33 did not deserve God's mercy. And said they deserve God's judgment. They deserve to be left dead where they were standing. 
Yet when Moses interceded on behalf of them and asked for God's presence to go with him and to go with Israel, the answer that he was given is, I will show mercy on whomever I show mercy and compassion on whomever I desire to show compassion. And what that means is, is it was an answer to Moses' prayer that God was going to be merciful with Israel, that he was going to show compassion to Israel even though they didn't deserve it, and he was going to go with them. Now, he did judge that generation as a consequence of their sin. But God continued to show mercy and compassion with Israel and that second generation as they went past into the promised land and into their future. And so the point being that mercy is not deserved. God is under no obligation to give anybody his mercy and his compassion. It is given freely and graciously by God that is in keeping with who he is and his own character. So if you look in verse 16, Exodus, uh, as Paul applies Exodus 33 and, and 19 to the fact that God does not act on the basis of him who wills or him who runs. So look with me in verse 16 where it says, So then it is not of him who wills nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Now this verse is a little confusing. It lacks a subject and a main verb. It is also confusing because the referent of it is not entirely clear. It appears to refer to God's response to idolatry from the quote in verse 15, namely, that God is the giver of mercies. Since this verse is connected to verse 19, it means that for this, for their, uh, for that basically, um, it appears it refers to God's response to idolatry from the quote in verse 15, namely that God is the giver of mercy. Since this verse is connected to verse 15, it means that the rejection of Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, is on par, or may I say even worse, than what Israel committed and their idolatry, and it relates to the golden calf. And so Israel of Paul's day are in the same boat of Israel in Exodus 33. They are idolaters. They have rejected God and they have, in essence, set up a God in their own image and in their own making. And one of the reasons that Paul actually writes the book of Romans is so that the people would understand of how they are to go come into relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It is not by the law. It's not by works. It is by faith in Jesus Christ through the grace of God. So Israel had made up their own way in order to go before God. And what Paul has been doing throughout the book of Romans is he's been showing through the Old Testament it has never been that way. And he started all the way back with Abraham, their father. He was justified by faith apart from the works. And he makes it clear from the Genesis event that Before the seal of the promise, before the act of circumcision that Abraham uh, performed as as that covenant seal, he was justified before that work. And so in the same way, that's what Paul is doing here in this text. He's showing that God's mercy... It's not by working or exerting or or running or trying to, to do more of the law. God's mercy is given by his gracious initiative. 
It's not by obligation. He is under no compulsion. There's no way that we can say, yes, uh, God, you have to do this because I did X, Y, and Z. Or that we went through a list and we checkmarked everything off. And so for this reason, Paul compares the Israel who he's speaking to, the first century Jews who've rejected Christ, as idolaters. Just like Israel of the golden calf. And so this rejection, this idolatry and worshiping of the golden calf is played out among the first century Jews. And like Israel at Sinai, the consequence of the rejection of the Lord Jesus is are entirely at the discretion of God. So how is first century Israel's rejection being played out? Israel's rejecting God through the Lord Jesus by willing or running or to say it another way. Israel believes that God is obligated to be merciful because of their human will and work and their effort. And this actually runs parallel to what we looked at in verse 14. If you'll notice back in uh, verse, uh, not 14, I'm sorry, verse 12, um, actually back in verse 10, and it says, and not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, the purpose of God according to election might stand not of works, not of works, but of him who calls. So God's gracious salvation is not of work, but it's of God who calls his people to himself. And so this runs parallel to verse 16, where he says, So then it's not of him who wills, nor of him who runs. It's not of him who works or him who exerts himself. So the running here is kind of a reflecting of this, this exertion, this, this tireless effort that trying to find themselves into a relationship with God through the work of the law. So it is God's gracious initiative by which mercy in and through faith in the Lord Jesus is given. So verse 16 answers the question in verse 19 by stating that God has every right to choose people not by works or ancestral heritage, but by mercy. God's mercy is his and his alone to bestow as he sees fit. So there's no unrighteous with God because God is free to do as he pleases. God is free to give mercy to whom he pleases. God is free to give compassion to whom he pleases. And he's under no obligation to do so to anyone. That's the wonder of salvation. It's the glory of salvation. That God in his compassion and in his mercy will reach out to us and call us to himself whereby we might be saved by faith through the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever just sat for a minute and wondered why is it that God has been so merciful to me? Why has God saved me? But the answer is not he saved me because of me. The answer is he has saved me because God is merciful and he is compassionate and he has shown mercy to me through Jesus Christ, by faith, through grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's only of God and God alone. And that's the point that Paul's trying to make. The Jews are trying to say, look at me. Look at my resume. Look at what I did. Look what member of church that I'm a part of. Look who my last name is. None of those things matter. 
When we stand before God, we stand with nothing to give Him. Nothing to offer Him. And if God responded to us on the basis of obligation or debt or work, it would not be mercy. It would not be grace. In fact, if that's the way that God responded, it would be a totally different religion. To work for salvation. For salvation to be dependent upon me is a different religion. It's not the gospel. It's not the Bible. And so God is in God's divine prerogative to give mercy to whomever he pleases. So if God can give mercy to whomever he pleases, then it also means that he can also harden or he can judge whomever he pleases. That's what we see in verses 17 through 18. In defense of God's righteousness, Paul further makes his case by using Exodus 9 in verse 16. So he used Exodus 33. Now he's in Exodus 9. So Paul takes a step back. Not talking about, about Israel, but now he's going to talk specifically about Pharaoh. Now I want you to take note of the formula used to introduce the quotation. So look in verse 17. For the scripture says to who? To Pharaoh. For the scripture says to Pharaoh. In doing this, what Paul, uh, Paul's purpose is that he's piling on his argument from the authoritative word. So again, verse 6 is in the background. Has the word of God failed? Paul says it's not failed. Look in the text. I'm going to show you what the word of God says. The word of God has not failed, and, that, and, and thus he demonstrates this using the word of God. And so the use of Exodus 9 in verse 16 is the negative side of the equation. So in Exodus 33, God has mercy and he has compassion on this idolatrous Israel who deserved to die right where they stood. So when we look at the Pharaoh instance, it's the negative side of this equation. So the use of Exodus 9 in verse 16 is the second part of the argument in defense of God's righteousness. And it's expressed more negatively than the preceding. So in Exodus 33, it is God's right to bestow mercy on Israel as he pleases. But in Exodus 9, God's judgment is mitigated. The Exodus 9 passage precedes the actual Exodus event. The quotation is God's message telling Moses how to confront Pharaoh after the plague of boils and before the plague of hell. God warns Pharaoh that he would have wiped Egypt from the earth, but he didn't because he had a purpose for him. Now, Exodus 9 has some important overlaps in Romans that are important to notice. There's three of them I want you to take notice of. Number one, God raised Pharaoh up to display his power. So if you look there in verse 17, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I may show my power. In the accident, both salvation and judgment occur through God's power. Israel is saved from slavery, and Egypt and, uh, and Pharaoh experience God's judgment. Without the judgment of Egypt and Pharaoh, there would be no salvation for Israel. The sense of saving power is noticeable in Romans. There is the reference to God's power in raising Christ in Romans 1 and verse 4. There's the power of the gospel and the salvation in Romans 1 and verse 16. The power of the Holy Spirit for believers and the hope for salvation in Romans 15 and verse 13. Then there's the power of signs and wonders 
in Romans 15 and verse 19 that overlap with the miracles of the Exodus event. There is also power in judgment, which is clear in 9 through 11. At the present moment, there is a hardening. There is unbelief. There is judgment of Israel, and at the same time, salvation for the Gentiles. So even in Israel's hardening and unbelief, God's saving power is clear in the salvation of the Gentiles. So, number one, God raised Pharaoh up to display his power. So throughout the book of Romans, we see this usage of power, power of God into salvation, and also power of God into judgment, in the same way that it's used in the Exodus event. There would be no Exodus. There would be no salvation for God's Old Testament people in that time if Pharaoh was not judged. If Egypt was not judged by the plagues, by the all the way culminating with the death of the firstborn, and even the judgment of the Red Sea. If there was not judgment on Egypt, there would have never been an exodus. There would have never been salvation for God's Old Testament people. Now, the second thing that I want us to think about this, that there's some overlap in Roman, is that God intended, he raised Pharaoh for this very purpose, so that his name might be proclaimed in all the earth. In Exodus, this, this took place through the plagues and the Red Sea event, with the known word hearing about the greatness of the true God, Yahweh. This is the reason for Rahab's salvation. Listen to Rahab's own words. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for when you came out of Egypt. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven and he is God on earth beneath. So in the same way, the rejection of the Jewish people led to the mission of the gospel to the Gentiles, to the nation. So God raised Pharaoh up so that his name might be known among all the nations. And the evidence of that is that Rahab, every one of us have heard about God. We know about the one true God. And this was the catalyst that brought her into the people of God. By hearing, she asked him to save us, to help us. And the same thing is being played out in salvation history after the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it becomes the practice of the apostles and along with Paul, is that they go in to the synagogues and they preach the gospel to the synagogues. And when the Jews reject them, they leave the synagogue and they begin to preach into the streets. And all the nations begin to hear the gospel message. So it was Paul's missionary purpose to go in there, not only so that his own people might hear about this Messiah named Jesus so that they might be saved, but he also went in there because there were God-fearers, Gentiles who were following the, of the followers of the Old Testament. And they would, most, most likely, those Gentiles would follow Paul and receive the gospel, then he would go out to the other people and take the name of Christ wherever people would listen to him. So there was the rejection of the Jewish people that ultimately led to the mission of the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, even in judgment, God is saving. Now, isn't this the message of the cross? That the message of the cross is that in judgment, in rejection, God is saving his people. Why was Jesus Christ put on the cross to begin with? 
Because evil men rejected him as Messiah. That's why he went to the cross. Now, this was in the purpose of God, that they will reject him as Messiah and that he be put on the cross. Well, what, what is the cross itself? The cross is judgment. The Lord Jesus Christ is on that cross being judged for my sins and your sins so that we might be saved. Salvation and judgment go together. Everywhere you see in Scripture, salvation and judgment go together. So the point that Paul is making here is that even in rejection, even in the hardening of heart, even where there is judgment, his saving purposes will not be thwarted in his people. The message of his salvation will go forward. And even at the end of the age, when Christ comes again, the Lord Jesus is going to come to do two things. He's going to come to save and he's going to come to judge. And the ultimate aspect of our salvation happens as Christ judges. He will judge sin, he will judge death, he will judge Satan, and destroy them forever. And that leads to salvation, the ultimate and the final and the fullness of our salvation that we receive in the Lord Jesus Christ. So one of the things I, I do want you to remember, that there is salvation in judgment. And that on the cross, the Lord Jesus would judge for our sins, so that by the power of the gospel, we might be saved. So God raises up Pharaoh, hardens his heart, judges him for the salvation of his people. And then the other thing, the third thing I want you to think about as it relates to this Exodus quote is it has a similar purpose as the reference to Malachi 1 and verses 2 through 3 that we saw in verse 13 a couple weeks ago. If you look back in verse 13, it says, As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. First century unbelieving Israel ironically has more in common with hated Esau and hardened Pharaoh than they do with Jacob whom God loved and the mercy bestowed on Israel after they worshipped the golden calf. What makes this more ironic is that first century Israel believes that God is obligated to give them mercy because of their ancestry and the fact that they pursued the law and said they can't receive mercy. That even their idolatrous forefathers received after a cataclysmic sin. And they are also being compared to wicked Pharaoh. But this is one of the things I think really comes out of this text that's really important. That there, there's this reversal of roads, if you will. God had used his people, Israel, for the perpetuation of his promises. To Israel was given all of the glorious benefits, to the covenant, the law, ultimately the Messiah. Jesus came from the lineage of Israel. That was the purpose of Abraham to begin with. God said, through your seed, and the seed is in the singular, through your seed, I will bless the nations. And so the promise was ultimately given in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Israel had the privilege of having Christ first. They saw his miracles. They heard his teaching. They witnessed him dying before their very eyes. They saw the empty tomb. They heard the message at Pentecost. Unfortunately, some people at the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came, they said they're drunk. They're speaking nonsense. And they rejected God's true Messiah. And consequently, because of their rejection, now they are like Esau, 
and Pharaoh. That's who they had more common with. And the Gentiles who were receiving Christ by faith are like Jacob. And like that idolatrous Israel who is receiving the mercy of God. Now, that has to be a real kick in the gut for them to hear that. Because if they're reading this, they're, they're thinking about the similarities. Well, if, if, if we're the ones that are rejecting, then that means that we're, we're Esau now. And we're Pharaoh now. We're the ones that's hardening our heart. How dare you compare us to these people? So, this is, this, is the, this is what the consequence is of rejecting the gospel and rejecting the Lord Jesus. It's disastrous. You become identified with that which God hates and that whom God hardens. And then Paul concludes his thought in verse 18, which is really a summation of all of verses 6 through 29. Mercy and justice are independent aspects of God's holy character. Exodus states that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, meaning that he made him stubborn and unyielding. God had told Moses before his meeting with Pharaoh that he would harden his heart so that he would not let Israel go, so that God's power might be manifest, so that his salvation might be seen in his people. Then beginning with Exodus 7 and verse 13, all the way to Exodus 8 and verse 19, the text describes Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then in Exodus 9 and verse 12, is the first occurrence of the phrase, the Lord hardened his heart. But while Pharaoh is defiant and yielding to the one true God, God uses this to mercifully save Israel. The hardening or the judgment was used for mercy and salvation. And God did this for his own purposes, for his own glory, in both salvation and judgment. Now, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart serves as a warning for us. Consider the warning of Hebrews 3. Watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage each other daily while it is still today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in rebellion. So the writer of Hebrews warns us to be on guard, to be sensitive, to not develop a heart that departs from the living God, but to encourage one another with the truth of God's word and the truth of the gospel so that I will not harden, so that we will not harden our hearts. And then he gives this quotation out of, uh, out of Psalms. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And what's the opposite? Do not harden your heart. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Embrace Jesus. Grow closer to Jesus so that your hearts will not be hardened. God is not obligated to save anyone. God saves freely on the basis of his mercy. Our hope rests entirely on the mercy of God in and through his son, Jesus Christ. Everyone is subject to God's judgment. And has no special claim to God's grace. There is nothing we can do to earn and deserve God's mercy. To be able to do so would negate it as mercy. It is only through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that God will be merciful. None of us can stand here today 
and say, God is under obligation to give us mercy. God is not under obligation to give us mercy. But God is merciful. He is compassionate. And he will give his mercy to all who will call on the name of the Lord Jesus and be saved. Let's pray.